Thank you. That's very kind of you. It's a joy to be back. Um, it seems no time since I was here. In fact, it has been no time since I was here. I think two weeks ago we were on campus with the Manhood Womanhood Conference, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, I never tire of telling you how much I appreciate your pastor. Uh, he was uh, one of the first pastors to reach out to me when I arrived in Orange County, and uh, we have become friends. Uh, we talk on a regular basis. Um, our ministries um, are um, ones that feed off each other, and I benefit from his pulpit and his writing, and I hope that's the same for him regarding me. And I'm thrilled that he's become a board member at Moody. I think that's good for Moody. It gives me encouragement regarding their future with men like that sitting around the board. He's an alumni, so he can speak into that world, but he's a strategic thinker and a wonderful leader and Bible expositor and theologian, so I'm thrilled for him, and I've communicated that to him. Our church brings uh, greetings. They'll be praying for us this morning that God will use his word in a great way in each of our lives and uh, that it will be a good one. Reminds me of the story of uh, the pastor who was standing at the door, ladies coming out, pastor, thank you for that message. It was a blessing. And trying to deflect attention from himself, he said, you know what, thank you, but don't thank me, thank the Lord. To which he replied, pastor, it wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> well, uh, we're hoping it's that good. Uh, and, and you'll be thanking the Lord you came this morning and God uses his word in each of our lives. As Pastor Doug mentioned, we have a book available out on the lobby. It's a hardback, a book I just wrote uh, in the last year called uh, Take Cover. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's $15. It, you can get it with cash or card. And um, it's a book about where a Christian finds their security in an insecure world. As some of you know, I spent some time in the Royal Ulster Constabulary in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and the fighting with the IRA, six years in law enforcement there as a reserve officer on anti-terrorist duties. I learned some things there just a couple of years ago in our own community. We had the ISIS attack in that medical facility in San Bernardino. Twelve good Americans lost their lives. It came so close that we were reminded we live in a world that's insecure, and so I thought that through with my congregation, did a ser several series uh, of sermons, and we put it down into a book. And I think it'll be a, a blessing. It's called Take Cover, Finding God's Protection. And I talk about several avenues by which you can know the peace of God and God's protection. Uh, there's a little statement in the book that's really the thesis of the book. Security is not the absence of danger. Security is the presence of God. You can't go anywhere in the world and, and, and remove danger from your life. It's an impossible. I know we try to achieve it, but it, it can't be achieved. Uh, I mean, the most guarded man in the world is the president of the United States, and we've had several assassination attempts and one uh, lost in assassination. So it's a reminder. We've got to find our security in God regardless of where we are, what we're facing. I did that as a police officer. As a nation, we need to learn that. So if that sounds like it would be a help to you, grab it. I say to our congregation, not just buy one for themselves, because I wrote it kind of with a little bit of a law enforcement bent to the book. It's a wonderful gift to someone you know in law enforcement. As they guard us, remind them to trust God, to guard them. Someone on the battlefield today, uh, serving our country abroad, uh, send it to them in the post and remind them that God will protect them as they protect us. Well, enough of that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. 
I want to speak this morning on the subject when, when trouble comes. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Keep your Bible open. We won't read it right now, but we will work our way through these 12 verses, and I'll read them as we meet them uh, in the exposition. Um, Grace Kelly, the, the former American-born actress, later to become the princess of Monaco, she once said this, the idea that my life is a fairy tale is itself a fairy tale. She's reminded us that we, while we might look at people from a distance and think that their life is idyllic and they don't have any troubles and trials like we do, it's not true. That's a fairy tale. Life is no fairy tale for any one of us. None of us will get through life unscarred, unscratched, unscathed. It's been well said, the trouble with life is that it won't lie down and behave itself. Have you ever find that to be true? It is true. There's no such a thing as a trouble-free life. What does Job say? Job says that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. As sure as you light a fire and the sparks go up, you can be sure that you will face trouble. Elsewhere, Job says, man born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Jesus said, didn't he, to his disciples in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul reminds the Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, it is not only our privilege to believe on the Lord Jesus, but to suffer for him. And here in James 1, we're reminded we will meet trials of various kinds. Trouble will come knocking on each of our doors. We can be sure about that. The issue is, how are we going to answer the door? How are we going to handle the trial? Successfully? Well? Are we going to respond in a proper manner? Because remember, life is only 10% what you make it. It is 90% how you take it, how you respond to the unfolding providence of God in your life. And so trouble will come. What do we do when trouble comes? James is going to give us a, a, a recipe here for handling trials successfully. He's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. We believe he's writing around about A.D. 44. He's writing to Acts parishioners who were once part of his congregation in Jerusalem, but because of persecution have been spread out across the Mediterranean basin. And they have gone from the fire into the frying pan. They are now facing a new set of troubles. And James wants them to handle that successfully. So keep your Bible open. When trouble comes, let's see what James says to those who are in trouble. We're going to look at several things. The first thing, if you're taking notes, I want to look at what I call the people. The people. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, this is his audience. This is the people. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, notice my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's a few clues in the text as to who these people are. They are Jewish by birth and ethnicity. They belong to the 12 tribes of Israel. We read, but they are brothers 
This is used 15 times in the letter. James is addressing brothers in Christ. So we marry those two thoughts. These are Jewish people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can tell that they are meeting, they are facing trials and troubles. We would assume that we're dealing with perhaps Acts chapter 7 and 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen. And we read in chapter 8 that many of the believers were scattered abroad and they went everywhere preaching the, the truth. Is it Acts 7 and 8 that brought about this situation where believers are dispersed across the Mediterranean basin? Possibly. Most commentators lean towards Acts chapter 12 and the persecution that comes at the hand of Cain Agrippa. Either way, the people are believers who are suffering, going through trials, hunted, harassed, hounded. They are cross-bearing Christians who once belonged to James's congregation in Jerusalem, but who are now being dispersed. And so he writes to help them handle their trials. Now, before we leave this thought of the people or the audience, let's look at the trials and how James describes their life contacts. And I think you'll be able to identify with what he says. You'll notice that their trials are sure. That's the first thing. Count it all joy, my brothers. Notice the word when. When you meet various trials. Not if, not perhaps, but when. Troubles are inevitable. Trials are certain. It's only a matter of time before you and I, as is true of these believers, it's only a matter of time before you and I run headlong into trouble. We can't dodge that bullet. We can't duck that reality. As sure as sparks in a fire go upward, you and I are going to face crosses and losses. I want to remind you this morning, I know you probably don't want to hear it, but trouble is headed your way. In fact, I can put us all into four categories. Regardless of who you are, your station in life, this is true of all of us. You're either going into trouble, you're either in trouble, you're either coming out of trouble, or having come out of trouble, you're going back into trouble. That's just a fact. I hope that's baked into the cake of your understanding of life. Because if not, you're going to set yourself up for disappointment. Trouble is headed your way. And in fact, if I can double down on that, if you're a Christian, you get a double scoop. You get a double scoop. Because in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, Peter says this. He talks about those who suffer as a Christian. So here's the reality. Along with our neighbors, we can get cancer. We can lose loved ones. Our business can, you know, collapse. We can become the victim of a crime. I mean, whatever everybody else faces, we face. But then on top of that, we can suffer as Christians. Because when we get saved, we repent and we turn around and we go against the traffic. We don't fit into the culture. We live by a different standard. And so we get mocked and ostracized and persecuted. Just put it down. Trials are sure. Number two, trials are sudden. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet 
trials. And I usually don't preach from the SV. I'm doing that for your sake today. I usually preach from the New King James, and that would probably put it like this, when you fall into various trials. And that's a better rendering, I think, because in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, the story of the Good Samaritan, where the man goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and the old King James are in the New King James, and it says, and he fell among thieves. You know, it's really they fell on him. It's a strong word. It's, it, it's, it's the idea of being ambushed. And it's, and it's, it's a thought. It's, 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 a, it's a striking thought. It's a disturbing thought. But this morning, you and I can be whistling our way down the road of life, happy as Larry, minding our own business, and boom, life will ambush us. We'll get rear-ended, not just literally, but metaphorically. All of a sudden, life will change in the wrong direction as far as we're concerned. And James just wants us to be aware of that. Remember, they had left persecution in Jerusalem, but they have gone from the fire into the frying pan. It hasn't got easier for them. It's got harder for them. And now they're facing more trials, and James wants to help them. Look, I'm not trying to deliberately discourage you. I'm just trying to wake you up to the reality of life, and I'm sure many of you are already woke to this reality, that life is hard. And you're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going back into one. And that's life. That's life from start to finish in this world, tribulation, various trials. And you can begin the day one way, and before the sun sets, your life is completely changed. Just takes one phone call from a policeman. Just takes one bad report from a doctor. Just takes a massive change in the economy. Terrorist attack. Criminal act. And your life can be changed dramatically. And, and James acknowledges that. Have you ever looked at Job 1, verse 6? Have you ever looked at Job 1, verse 13? That, I, that struck me, and it's never left me when I was reading that chapter many years ago. And you come across this little phrase, and there was a day when Job, there was a day that changed his life irrevocably. He loses children. Marauders steal his property and ruin his crops. There was a day. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you're from. When your life story is written and you get to that last chapter, I'll guarantee you somewhere in there, there's a chapter entitled, There Was a Day. Because we all have those chapters. And James acknowledges that. Finally, trials are sure. Trials are sudden. Trials are select. Select. There's different kinds of trials. Doesn't James acknowledge that? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, when you fall into trials of various kinds. There's a trial just for you. They come in all shapes and sizes. Physical, material, financial, circumstantial, spiritual, natural, national. In fact, read the letter of James there's poverty talked about in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Persecution, chapter 5, verse 6. Injustice, 5, verse 4. Sickness, 5, verse 14. 
the believers to whom James was writing were dealing with various trials. Some was physical sickness, some was circumstantial persecution, some was a life context, poverty, and economic struggles. In fact, this word various is an interesting Greek word. It means um, multicolored, multicolored, huh. variegated. Every hue and shade of trial and trouble imaginable will come our way because there are different tests for different people at different times for different purposes. So, so that's our first thought, the people. Ex-parishioners of James scattered throughout the Mediterranean who are now facing a new wave of trials. Those trials were sure to come. Those trials were sudden. Those trials were of various kinds. <laughs> I think I've shared this story several years ago here at the church uh, about a friend of mine who was a chaplain at the Detroit Tigers in Detroit when I was in Ohio. Spent the night with him at a game there. One night we were talking, he shared the story uh, about a friend of his who was the chaplain of Manchester United Soccer Club, which was my club from a boyhood. Uh, and, and he shared a story this guy told of a friend of his who was an English pastor who um, came to America on vacation, became friends with a pastor in Virginia who asked him during his vacation if he would like to speak. And the pastor said, well, you know what? I will. I just preached the message a week ago. It's still fresh in my mind, still heavy on my heart. I'll be happy to share it. So he gets up and he preaches a message called the butts of life. And he bases his message on 2 Kings 5 verse 1, where you read about Naaman, who was a mighty man of valor, a wonderful military commander, a Syrian and it says, but Naaman was a leper. Here you've got this man, a success over here, but he's got a problem like all of us. But Naaman was a leper. And so he had an outline based on this text. The message was called the butts of life. Now, to understand how it went wrong, you need to understand that back in Britain, there's a certain part of your anatomy we call our bottom or our behind. But here in the grand old United States, it's called what? Your butt. So you're going to understand how this doesn't fly with an American congregation. So he gets up, he says, I've got three things I want to say. Number one tonight, based on 2 Kings 5 verse 1, everybody's got a butt. <laughs> Number two, some people's butts are bigger than other people's butts. <laughs> and number three, it doesn't do you any good to compare your butt with someone else's butt. <laughs> I, back in Britain, that flew. Here it didn't. But that's, all jokes aside, that's a reality. Go back to our tax. But Naaman was a leper. We've all got a but. There's something we're dealing with in life. Success over here, but trouble over here. We've all got a situation we're dealing with. Trials are sure. Trials are sudden. Trials are select. So let's move on. Number two, the perspective. Here's the perspective James wants to bring. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, that's striking, isn't it? He wants them to be happy in their unhappiness. He wants them to see good in the midst of the bad. He wants them to be glad, not sad. 
Count it all joy when life turns south. Count it all joy when circumstances ambush you. Count it all joy when your life is turned inside out. That's a perspective that's so counterintuitive, isn't it? That, that doesn't come easily, doesn't come naturally. Because here's our natural response. We count it joy when we exit trials. James tells us to count it joy when we enter trials. That's striking. Because you see, we see life's trials as an unwelcome intruder. Trouble comes knocking. We look through the window on our door and there stands trouble on our doorstep. We don't even want to open the door. Shoo them away. We don't want you, don't want you now, don't want you ever, don't need this. And James is saying, hold on a minute. Here's what I'm going to recommend. I know it's not natural. It's counterintuitive. But you know what? God's going to use this. Let trouble come in. Welcome it as a friend. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Now, here's what helps us. This is an act of faith. What James is asking us to do will require belief in the sovereignty of God, an unwavering confidence in the goodness of God, because every good and perfect gift comes from above. A belief in the providence of God that all things work together for good. You're to count it all joy. If you work as an accountant, this is your word, this is your world. This is like the balance sheet. And if you're balancing the books or looking at the, the wealth of a company, you might put in one column assets and another column liabilities. And James uses this word. Here's what he's saying. When trouble comes of various kinds to your doorstep, here's what you're going to do naturally. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the promises of God's word, apart from belief in the sovereignty of God, you're going to look at that sickness, that setback, that betrayal, that act of violence, whatever it might be. You're going to say, that is a liability. <clears throat> I don't want it, don't need it. I, I hope God takes it away. Jim says, no, by faith, believing that God is up to something beyond the human eye, that, that beyond your feelings, you've got to take it by faith and take that liability and put it over in the asset column and say, this is good for me, even though it's not good. I don't feel good about it. You know, it's, 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 it's trouble and, it, and it's, it's, it's a trial, but, but God's going to use it because here's what the text says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God's going to do something with this trial. We'll come to that in a minute. But that's the perspective. Can you right now in your circumstances count it joy? Or are you denying reality? You're taking the position of an ostrich. You've got your head in the sand. You're not dealing with this well. Things are falling around you, and you're not stepping up and moving forward. Are you hiding? Are you running? Are you complaining? Are you becoming bitter? No, you're to count it joy. Not that it is joyful, but by faith you're going to count it a joy. You're going to keep your faith. You're going to master your emotions by your theology. 
You're going to allow the Bible and Christian biography to remind you that God can work all things together. You're going to look at the gospel, remind yourself that the triumph of the cross is a reminder that God can do His greatest work in the darkness in the midst of a crucifixion. You're going to remind yourself that the joy that James is talking about here is not a human emotion. It's the result of a theological perception. You're going to take this natural liability and count it a spiritual asset because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness is allowed to do its work, you become a more mature Christian, a more complete follower of Jesus Christ. You lack nothing. This isn't a mindless laughter. This isn't a silly giddiness. Life is too brutal for that. Life can break our hearts and bend us over its knee. But in the middle of that sour, difficult, heartbreaking situation, by the grace of God, you find a joy underneath the belief that God's going to take this event that may be a weapon in the hand of the enemy to hurt you, but in the hand of God, it's a tool to shape you. We'll come to that in a moment. This is a joy based on things we know about Jesus, about the nature of God, the promises of God, the unshakable nature of the kingdom of God. We may not be thankful for our circumstances, but we can be thankful in our circumstances because God is within us in our circumstances, working all things together for good. Amen? Now, here's a thought. I love Warren Wearsby, always have. He went to be with the Lord just a week ago. In his commentary on James, Dr. Warren Wearsby talks about how values determine evaluations. Hang with me for a moment. You've got to do a bit of thinking here. Value determines evaluation. His point is this. When it comes to trials, how are you going to take that which is a liability and accept it as an asset and see it as a valuable thing? How can... An illness be valuable? How can relational pressure be valuable? How can betrayal be valuable? How can the world turning against me be valuable? You've got all kinds of scenarios. Values determine evaluations. Here's his point. If you value comfort more than character, you won't handle your trial well. If it's about comfort, ease, happiness on a superficial level, you're not going to like the sorrow and the suffering. You're going to see no use, no profit, no benefit. See, your value will determine your evaluation. If you value character, if you value Jesus Christ, if you value bearing fruit born of the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't matter what you lose if you gain Christ. If you value the present compared to the future, if you value the material compared to the spiritual, you won't handle your character or your trial well. No, but if you value your relationship with God, knowing Him, even in the darkness, where in some senses we meet Him in a greater fashion than in the light, where the sufficiency of God is proven sufficient, where the peace of God passes all understanding, where there's joy unspeakable in the midst of the unspeakable, if you value that, then you can value the trial. Because when the trial is finished and you've handled it correctly, you come out more mature, sweeter, stronger as a believer. 
Listen to these words by uh, George Matheson. He was a Scottish poet. He wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He was jilted by a girlfriend close to marriage. He, he, he talks about a love that won't let you go. He was 40 years blind when he wrote this. From a boy, he was blind, lived in Scotland, my wife's native country. He wrote about this. My God, I've never thanked thee for my thorn. I have thanked thee 1,000 times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I've never, I have been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross, but I've never thought of my cross as a present glory. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I've climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have been my rainbow. Have you and I got to that kind of place where we not only thank God for the rose, but for the thorn? We not only look for compensation for our cross bearing, but we see the glory of carrying the cross where we count it joy. That's the people, that's the perspective. What about the purpose? We've touched on this, but I'm going to expand on it. We'll go back to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of, of different kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Follow, follow the logic. You know. That's a word in the Greek that means by experience. You know by experience. Either, either yourself because of a former trial that God used, or you know through the experience of other saints, if you've watched them go through the furnace and come out the other side like gold. Remember what Job said? When I am come forth, I shall be like gold. You've seen it in biblical characters. You've read the stories of the martyrs and how God has used their fiery trials to glorify himself and bring them closer to an experience of his son. Now, you know by experience that trials handled properly will approve your faith, strengthen your walk, that patience being let to have its full effect will produce in you a developed character. That's how you can count it all joy because there is a purpose to the trial. There are no accidents, only appointments. And when we fall into trials, we can be sure that God has purposed that. Yes, the enemy might use it as a weapon, but God will use it as a tool. And the product or the purpose is to make us a more complete Christian. Let me just break those phrases down. The testing of your faith. The word tester spoke of precious metals like gold and silver that were heated up in, in the furnace to remove the alloys and the weaknesses. That's, that's Job's idea. Given the trial, fiery trial he's gone through, when I am come forth, I shall be like gold. Fire is good for precious metals. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, we'll talk about fiery trials and the genuineness of your faith that comes out of that. The genuineness of our faith. Is it gold or silver or is it wood, hay, and stubble or tested in the fire? Testing of your faith. That's the proving the purity of our trust in God. It produces patience. It produces a solid strong faith that endures. 
and grows through the trial so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I like the way one preacher put it, that, that submitting to God in the trial, enduring in the midst of it to learn what God is teaching us, to develop a deeper walk with Him, God will fill in the gaps in our character. Isn't that true? We learn more in the storm than we do in the sunshine. And if you endure your trial, if you remain steadfastness under the sovereignty of God, submitting yourself to the lessons that God wants to teach you, where the Spirit of God is purging you and pruning you, you'll come out the other side and gaps in your character will be filled in. You'll be more patient. You'll be more loving. You'll be more gracious, more mellow. You know that some of the sweetest saints you have ever met have gone through the sorest of life's experience. That's my experience. Some of the sweetest, most content, mellow, take life as it comes kind of Christians are the ones who have been beat and battered the most. But they remained under steadfast and the gaps were filled in. We need to learn that lesson. We need to learn a lesson that a young pastor learned in the company of Dr. Harry Ironside who pastored at Moody Church in Chicago many years ago, a young pastor came and said, you know what, Dr. Arnsard, and he was pretty old by this stage, said, I'd like you to pray for me because I'm not very patient. I'm young, petuous. I've got all kinds of ideas for this church and it, it, it's, it's, it's slow and I get impatient with the people, lose a little bit of my temper sometimes. I need to be more patient. I need to be a more loving shepherd. Would you pray for me? Dr. Arnsard said, oh, certainly. So he starts praying. Oh, God, I pray that you'll load this young man down with troubles that he can hardly handle. <laughs> I pray, oh, God, you'd swallow him up in sorrows and suffering. And the guy's listening going, is this old guy lost his hearing? And he actually stops Dr. Arnsard in the prayer. He says, Dr. Arnsard, I think you misunderstood. I asked you to pray for patience. You're praying that I'd have all kinds of trouble and trial. And Dr. Arnsard said, son... Romans 5, 5, tribulation produces patience. And patience produces character. And character produces hope. What a lesson. You want to be patient? Well, then you need to handle trials successfully, believingly, submissively. Here's a word before we leave this thought of the purpose. You've got to circle this word here, let. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. What's James getting at there? It's a kind of idea of a lie. Give permission to. Let it happen. Let what happen? Let the trial unfold. Don't run. Don't hide. Don't become bitter. Submit. Trust. And let God do his work. Be steadfast. Endure. Get up every day and draw from the grace of God and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Stay under the trial. Endure that set of circumstances you naturally would like to escape because God's going to build character. God's going to use you, build a platform for witness. He's going to develop you and have a greater impact for the kingdom. Let because James knows we want to jump. We want to bail out of the trial. It's only natural. 
It's only natural when you're wreathing in physical pain or mental anguish or circumstantial pressures. We don't want to stay there. We want out. But the issue is, will you, will you allow God time to bring you out, bring you forth as gold, or will you bail early? Will you not submit? Will you fight the purposes of God? Will you try and outsmart the all-wise one? I don't know if you've heard the funny story of the lawyer, the doctor, the little boy, and the priest who were in a plane flying one afternoon that developed some mechanical problems. The pilot did all that he could to keep the, the plane airborne, but it started to lose altitude. They descended at a rapid speed. He realized it was all over. He said, you know what? You need to bail. And there was four of them, only three parachutes. And so the doctor, he grabs one of the parachutes, puts it on, jumps out, and says, I save lives, so mine's worth saving. Then the lawyer grabs a parachute. He says, you know, I'm the smartest guy on the plane. I deserve to live. And he jumps out. The priest, he grabs the parachute and hands it to the little boy. He said, you know what? I've lived a long and a full life. You know, you're young and the whole life ahead of you. You take the last parachute. And the little boy grabs it and pushes it back to the priest. And he says this, don't worry, Father. The smartest man on the plane just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> now, that's not true. You know that's not true. But... It helps me make a point. It helps me make a point. We can jump the gun in life. We can bail early. We want to we pull the metal out of the furnace before it's purified. We can't stand it for one more minute. I can't stand it for one more day. I understand where you're coming from, but find the grace. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you might be perfect and complete and the gaps in your character get filled in. Let's move on. The prayer, the prayer, this is verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him, not, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How interesting. At the end of verse four, James says, if you remain under the, 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 the trial and let patience have its perfect work and God fills in your character, you'll get to a place where increasingly in character you'll lack nothing. You'll be a complete rounded Christian. But then all of a sudden he says, but if you lack wisdom, ask of God. We go from lacking nothing to lacking something. But it's all tied together because here's the point. You will need a lot of wisdom to let steadfastness have its full effect. You will need a lot of wisdom to fight the temptation to hightail it out of your trial and try and outsmart God and go against his purposes and fight the providence of God, which is a no-win situation, by the way. And so here we have this prayer. Now, there's two elements to it. There's the, the spirit of the prayer, and there's the subject of the prayer. I'm not going to spend much time on the spirit of the prayer. The spirit of the prayer is what? An unwavering trust in the goodness of God. Because a trial always has us questioning God's character and God's goodness and God's love. And James says, no. When you're in the, in the, in the furnace and you're, the heat's being turned up, but remember, God's got his hand on the thermostat. 
Don't sit with the proverbial daisy in the midst of your sorrow and go, God loves me, he loves me not. God loves me, he loves me not. God loves me, he loves me not. You're like a wave that's being tossed up and down. Don't go to God in that state because without faith, it's impossible to please him. As hard as it is, you've got to have an unwavering trust in God's goodness so that you let steadfastness have its full, full work. That's the spirit. It's, it's to trust God despite your feelings. It's to trust God regardless of what the circumstances communicate. It's to trust God like Job in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the spirit of the prayer. The one that interests me is what I call the subject of the prayer. The subject of the prayer. What are we praying for? We've talked about it. We're praying for insight. We're praying for wisdom, insight, perspective that allows us to count it all joy that allows us to remain under the trial and let steadfastness have its full effect, that allows us to look beyond our emotions and the circumstances and wait for that character development that will come on the other side of the pain. You don't, you don't do that naturally. Remember, this is counterintuitive. This is not what people do. They run. They hide. They become bitter. If you're going to do this, God's going to have you give you the wisdom to do it. Now, remember this. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He, he writes with a Hebraic uh, perspective. And so when he uses the word wisdom here, we're very much into the book of Proverbs. Hokmah is the Hebrew for it. It means skill for living. This is not mere education. There are many clever fools in our culture. Most of them are called experts on TV. No, we're dealing with wisdom. See, the Greek mindset was cleverness, subtlety of thought. That's not the Hebrew idea of wisdom. The Hebrew idea of wisdom is practical usefulness. Can you govern your tongue? Can you protect your purity? Do you understand the dividend of diligence? You go through the book of Proverbs, you get all these great categories of things in life where they want you to have an aptitude to handle life. And mostly wisdom is knowing what to do in a given situation. And it's more than that. It's, it's knowing what to do from God's perspective in a given situation. It's understanding the way of God's will in God's world and cooperating with it. Let steadfastness have its full effect. It's more than acquiring knowledge. I'm sure Pastor Mike's dealt with this many times. It's more than acquiring knowledge. It's applying knowledge. It's knowing what to do in a given situation from a Godward perspective. See, um, knowledge tells you that a tomato is a fruit. Well, you call it a tomato, but it's really a tomato. A tomato is a fruit. Knowledge will tell you that. Wisdom will tell you, don't put it in a fruit salad. Because <laughs> it doesn't belong there. That's, that's wisdom. That's knowing what to do in a given situation. Same here. Ask God to give you wisdom to stay under your trial when the natural reaction is to run. Ask God to give you wisdom to react properly. 
Ask God to allow you under the pressure of the moment and the stress of the situation to look beyond that moment, to, to master your emotions, to look beyond what your eye sees and see by faith. On the other side of this, God is going to round my character. I'm going to have a greater knowledge of him, a deeper experience of him, and hopefully I'm going to look and sound more like the Lord Jesus because God's going to take this trial and fill out the gaps in my character. Or maybe I put it like this, ask God for wisdom not to waste your sorrow, to let steadfastness do its work. Don't bail, don't run, don't become bitter. That little phrase came into my life several years ago, and we'll move on here, but let me tell you this story. I went to visit one day in my first church in Northern Ireland, two ladies. One was a spinster in her 90s, and the other was a widow in her 80s. Two sisters, Eileen Brown and Betsy Brown. I loved them dearly. Sweet, seasoned saints of God. I arrived at the door. Eileen came to the door. She says, oh, pastor, it's so good to see you. I was praying this morning that you'd come by. I said, oh, Eileen, I'm happy to be an answer to your prayer. We go in, get a nice cup of tea, some shortbread, and we talk life. And then I, I looked at Eileen's situation. You know, she's 80, 84 years of age, no more than 100 pounds, looked like the pipe cleaner. I mean, this is, this is, this is, a, this is a slight little woman. Her sister was bigger than her, 94, somewhat bedridden. Eileen had to take care of her sister, Betsy. I couldn't imagine bathing her, taking care of her. I said, Eileen, how are you doing? How are you coping? With the sweetness of a smile in Christ, she said, Pastor, God is teaching me patience. 84, still sitting down at the desk in the schoolroom of Jesus Christ as a disciple. Letting steadfastness have its full effect so that she may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As I left, Eileen put a little book in my hand. I've got it in my library. It's my thought here. It was a little book entitled, Don't Waste Your Sorrow. And every time I think of her, I think of that phrase. And I thought about that when I was studying James. And Eileen and Betsy came to mind. Don't waste your sorrow. Ask God for wisdom. What is it he wants to teach you? At 84, he was teaching Eileen Brown patience with a 94-year-old sister. Let's move on. Squeeze in our last couple of thoughts. What I call the practice. The practice. This is verses 9 and 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What's going on here in verses 9 and 11? James has given us a theology of suffering, how to handle our trials. And now he applies it to two concrete situations. He thinks about a poor brother, a poor saint who's dealing with economic pressure. And then on the other side of that scale, he thinks about a rich brother who's loaded down with material blessing. But both of them are going to deal with trials and how are they to respond. 
let's deal with the poor brother first. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does that mean? He's, life is pressing down on him. He's got economic struggles. He's got hardly two pennies to rub together. He doesn't know where the next meal's coming from. There was no social security in those days. There was no financial safety net being provided by the Roman government. This guy's he's out on a plank. What's he to do? He's to boast in his exaltation. What's that? That's his spiritual position. Because he's been raised, according to Ephesians 1, to sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. His union with Jesus Christ provides the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's glory. Peter would remind him, hey, you have an inheritance in heaven reserved for you. It doesn't fade away. You may not be rich by material standards, but spiritually, you're a millionaire in Jesus Christ. And so when you are economically struggling, exalt, exalt yourself regarding your exaltation. Remember the fixed and forever stuff that you have that's not subject to theft, taxes, or recession. You have in Jesus Christ that which money cannot buy and death cannot steal. But then he says to the rich brother, who's financially well off, well, materially well healed, when he's in a trial, he's, he's to glory in his humiliation. He's to be thankful that things have uh, turned sour for him, that life has been upended. You go, why would a brother be encouraged to glory in his humiliation? Because James will go on to say, you realize as a rich man someday, you're going to fade away like the grass of the field and like the beauty of a flower in the midst of your pursuits. That, that no hearst has a U-Haul attached to it. You leave it all behind. So if you're in your trial, which will remind you that money can't buy you everything, you need to glory in that. Be thankful that the trial has reminded you of your riches in the Lord Jesus. It has reminded you not to trust on certain riches. It has reminded you that it doesn't profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul. You are reminded that your greatest asset is your spiritual inheritance in heaven that doesn't fade away either. Because wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said about wealth and prosperity, and it's always a danger for those living in Anaheim Hills and Elisa Viejo where we are living in many ways a beautiful lifestyle. If we're not careful, prosperity can knit our souls to this old world. And, and you know what? If you're rich and we are by any measure where we live, we're to glory in our humiliation. We're to glory in the fact that sometimes life reminds us it's not the size of your home, your curtains, the car in the garage. It's, it's what money cannot buy and what death cannot steal. Jesus is our treasure. And God is our banker. And heaven is our home. So James wants to Remind them of that. I like the story of the tax assessor who came to an old home in England many, many years ago when in those days the tax assessor, the IRS, would come to your home. 
because people's wealth was determined by the silverware that they had or precious metals that they had, and they, their taxes were assessed on the basis of that. And this was a rather humble cottage. The tax assessor comes and asks the guy to declare what he had, and here's what he said. I have, number one, I have everlasting life. Number two, I have a mansion in heaven. Number three, I have peace that passes all understanding. Number four, I have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Number five, I have a divine love that never fails. Number six, I have a faithful wife. Number seven, I have happy and obedient children. Number eight, I have loyal friends. Number nine, I have songs in the night. And number 10, I have a crown of life waiting for me in heaven. The tax assessor looks at him and says, Sir, you are very rich. And best of all, your possessions are not subject to taxation. And that's true of the believer. And so when the poor man is in a trial, he's the glory in his exaltation of what he has in Christ forever, fixed. And the rich man, he's the glory in his humiliation because his humiliation is cutting the apron strings that attaches him to all this material stuff. That's good for him, bringing him back to remember his true riches is not his bank account, the cut of his clothes or the, or, or the, or the badge on the hood of his car. It's Jesus Christ. That's the practice. James just applied his theology to two life contacts. Brings us to the last thought, what I call the prospect. And we'll kind of pick up on what that man said in England. You know what? Number 10, I have a crown of life waiting for me in heaven. That's where James is, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. The word blessed means happy. It speaks of benediction. So we're picking up this theme from verse 2, counted all joy. Blessed is the man who remains under trial. There's our thought of letting steadfastness have its full effect. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. We're back to the language of let the testing of your faith producing steadfastness. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James is kind of taking this idea of eschatological joy, the, the full fulfillment of joy, that joy unspeakable and full of glory that awaits us at the gates of heaven or the rapture of the church when Jesus comes imminently for his people. James takes that thought and he wants it to act like smelling salts for flagging spirits because it's not easy. As you can imagine, some of you can testify this morning, it's not easy to stand up under the trial, to wade day by day through excruciating pain, a bad marriage, a life context. It's not easy. How do you do it? Where, where do you get the strength to keep going? Where do you get the resolve to continue? It's this thought of what lies ahead. Blessedness lies ahead. Eternal life lies ahead. That, that's the thought here. Outlook determines outcome. And so James wants these scattered suffering saints to look ahead to heaven, to anticipate God's well done, to know that someday there will be rest 
there will be release. There will be relief at that place where there's no crying, no dying, and no sighing. This is the kind of carrot on the end of the stick, so to speak. This eschatological hope. Paul talks about it, doesn't he? In Romans 8, verse 18, that the suffering of this present time is not to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Similar thought in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. So what's the crown of life? It's, it's, well, that was the wreath that either a military commander would wear after a great triumph on the battlefield or a victorious athlete who competed in the games. It was a, a wreath, a temporary crown. But Paul talks about these crowns that are not temporary. The, these blessings that await the child of God in the life to come. And the crown of life, I believe, is just the fullness of eternal life. Don't ever fall into the trap that we're waiting to enjoy eternal life. We have got eternal life right now coursing through our lives. The Spirit of God indwells us. He's made us alive in Jesus Christ. He opens up to us to the vistas of the gospel and all that God has for us. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be crowned with the fullness of eternal life. Those of us who endure. Now again, we're not talking about you win salvation or you work salvation by enduring. No, that's the fruit of saving faith. We're saved by faith, but it's a faith that will endure, a faith that will persevere. And those who stand to the test and those who let steadfastness have its full effect will lay down their cross at the gates of heaven, sigh in relief, be embraced by Jesus Christ, Walk in the company of the martyrs of church history and remind themselves at that first moment, and it, is, it has been worth it all now that I see Jesus. I'm glad I listened to James. I'm glad I let patience have its perfect work. Let me tell you this story as the team gets ready to come. This is a story I took from Spurgeon. I think I'll make my point and wrap this sermon up. Spurgeon says this, often when I have been traveling in the continent, that's in Europe, I have been obliged to put up at a hotel that was full, where the room was inconvenient, scarcely furnished. But I would remind myself, and we would say to each other, oh, never mind, we're off in the morning. What does it matter for one night? So the, here's the point. Spurgeon's been traveling, preaching, gets to a certain place late, He's hoping for nice accommodation, gets to the inn of the hotel. It's all booked out. There's one little room left. It's got no windows in it. It's got hardly any furniture. You know what? The mattress is as flat as a pancake. Terrible. But Spurgeon doesn't lose it. He goes, hey, lie down, guys. It's only for one night. We're off in the morning. And then he takes that analogy and he applies it to life. Same thing. It's James's thought here. Oh, your various trials, they make you sick, don't they? They're not easy to handle, are they? But you know what? Count it all joy. Don't lose it. Keep your perspective. Act in faith. Submit to the providence of God. Let steadfastness of faith do its work. And God will fill in the gaps in your character. You'll continue to move forward. You'll deepen your walk with God. You'll widen your impact of influence. And you know what? Someday you'll be gone. And all those troubles and trials will be behind you. Weeping will last for a night. Joy will come in the morning. 
And blessed is the man or woman who stands up in the test and endures, for theirs will be a crown of life. Amen? Father, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. Help us to um, master this text and let this text master us. Lord, we, we admit this is counterintuitive. This isn't our natural bent. This is, what, this is not what we, we do apart from grace. Our, our culture sees no redemptive value in suffering. Our culture has no answer or hope that's, that's large enough to handle the suffering of life. But we have just been told and reminded of a hope that ends in the fullness of eternal life. We've been reminded that even our pain has purpose and our difficulty has design and God's going to use it as a tool to shape us and fill in the gaps in our character. So help us not to bail. Help us not to try and outsmart you. Help us to stay where we are, to endure what you've sent. Wait for you to bring about relief and release. Help us to learn the lessons. Help us not to waste our sorrows. For those who are here without Jesus Christ in the midst of life with all of its challenges and death approaching, may they find Christ, who's the life and the resurrection. For we pray and ask it in his name. Amen.